from day one, I realized it was all about creating some form of passive income. Yeah. Now, that could either be professionally through our businesses, like our mortgage broking businesses, Bushy, or creating passive income through rental income. So every day I get up and say to myself, what can I do today to create passive income? Welcome to Get Invested on the Property Hub podcast channel, the leading weekly show to help you unlock your full self, health and wealth potential. I'm your host, Bushy Martin, and each week I go deep with the best investors, experts, leaders and founders to find out what it takes to break free from the grind, discover freedom and live by design. Subscribe now and join me and get invested in the life you really want. Let's get started. Hi, Freedom Fighters. What do you focus on when you're looking to finance a property or add to your portfolio? Is it the rate, the fees, your familiarity with the bank, or perhaps the ease and speed of the process? Now, while all of these are what I would consider to be secondary considerations, as you'll hear today, they shouldn't be your primary focus. Unfortunately for many borrowers, these are the things that most banks, lenders, and unfortunately way too many brokers focus on but they're missing the point. While it's easy to try and condense your loan option comparisons down to the lowest common denominator of the interest rate, without realizing it, you're actually selling yourself short. Why do I say this? Because as a borrower, you need to look beyond cost to capacity. Now, this is particularly important for investors where your biggest lending asset is your buying capacity. Now, I can hear you thinking, what do you mean, Bushy? Aren't all the banks and lenders the same? So why not just compare my options based on the lowest rate? Well, my response to this is a resounding no. You may be surprised to hear that there's a 55% variation across the 40-odd residential lenders in terms of how much they're going to let you borrow. Now, that's the difference between being able to secure a $500,000 loan and a $775,000 loan. And assuming you've got the required equity deposit and the cash flow affordability, this size will increase in your property purchase power will add hundreds of thousands of dollars to your nest egg in the long term. So you can achieve significantly higher property results just by shifting your focus from cost to capacity. Or as I like to say, it's not about the rate, it's all about the reach. Now a higher borrowing capacity loan may incur a slightly higher rate, but if you're an investor, your interest costs are all totally tax deductible, so this shouldn't be a barrier. And in today's current lending climate, where rising rates have significantly reduced your borrowing capacity, your reach is more important than ever. It can actually make or break your ability to secure your next property. So if this has caught your attention, then you're really going to love our discussion on how to improve your borrowing capacity with today's special guest, John Mancianelli. Along with his expert hands-on tips on buying investment property and building your portfolio, along with the exciting new world of builder brokers that he's pioneering together with his great wife. Now, like yours truly, John's a property investor turned finance broker who's made it his life's work to help you and other hardworking Aussies with your finance needs and your property aspirations. John's business, Hunter Wood Solutions, is a full-service financial services company with over 50 years combined experience, and he and his wife are the founders of Builder, Builder, I've got to get this right here, John, Builder Finders. But as you'll hear today, all of this has happened after he accumulated a a sizable portfolio of 11 properties by the time he was 32. So we're really looking forward to unpacking the highs, lows and learnings of his personal investment journey. 
And while we're talking about sharing actual hands-on investor experiences, if you or someone you know wants to share your unique property journey for the benefit of others here on Get Invested, just reach out to me personally at bushy at knowhowproperty.com.au. Now, if you've been listening to Get Invested in recent times, you've also started to notice the common thread of property investors becoming finance brokers like I did many years ago. As we've all learned that success in property is very much a game of finance and clever finance structuring is the fuel that powers your property potential and ultimate performance. So I'm really looking forward to this deep dive conversation with a like-minded investor and highly regarded and well-respected industry colleague. So welcome and let's get invested, John. Wow, what an introduction, Bushy. Thank you so much. I'm I'm so humbled to be on your show. So yeah, really well, the, this chat. The feeling's mutual, mate. I'm, I'm humbled to have you on. I've uh, been an admirer of what you've done in the industry for a long period of time, John. So we're... Uh, it's a great opportunity for us to really share some some of the gold that you've picked up over the years with aspiring listeners in that in the property space. But mate, for for those that have been living under a rock and and haven't seen you in in the many places that you've been, obvious uh, educating people on on how to do things properly. What do you do differently, and more importantly, why do you do what you do, John? Thanks, Bushy. Uh, my my life story. I'm not sure if it's that exciting, but it's uh, it's an interesting one. Uh, I started in the pharmaceutical industry 10 years ago. Oh, sorry. My first 10 years in professional services was in pharmaceuticals. And I uh, ended up that period of time in operating theatres with neurosurgeons doing spinal fusion and uh, spinal fusion, selling engineering implants. And, um, you know, the logical uh, succession to that career is to get into finance brokering. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, well, I want to jump straight in there because there seems to be a big chasm between the the, the big pharma world and and finance broking. Uh, what was it that triggered the? Why did you get into pharma in the first place? And and then what what triggered your interest yeah. in into the finance arena? Now, the recession you had to have really caused me to look around, and I always thought health was an industry that would never would be recession proof. This is how old I am. You couldn't find work in banking or merchant banking back in the day, and when I'd come back from living in Milan, I'd seen this job saying, you know, pharmaceutical rep, let's sell science or pharmacy, pharmacy um, yeah, health solutions. Yeah. And that was an amazing career. I learned a lot. But um, yeah. in answer to your question, I read this amazing book that everyone knows about now called Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And uh, I was doing deals in operating theatres, <laughs> trying to secure properties. And uh, amazing story, mate. I, I would uh, When I was a pharmacy rep and going around to various GPs, I made it a, a bit of a fun game to see how cheap I could find these properties. And I think the cheapest I found well, she was a $13,000 townhouse. Yeah, just outside of Canberra. $13,000. Well, yeah, $13,000. I thought this is all, this is too good to be true. You know, that bloke Kiyosaki, what does he know? <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so uh, amazing story. So it, to answer your original question, what do I do different – I, know, I think from a professional perspective, from day one, I realised it was all about creating some form of passive income. Yeah. Now, that could either be professionally through our businesses, like our mortgage broking businesses, Bushy, or creating passive income through rental income. So every day I get up and say to myself, what can I do today to create passive income? Mate, um, I, I, I know it sounds silly, but it's a daily habit that um, does make a difference. And so... The purpose of my life has been to help people. I come from a very, very poor ethnic background and I want people to, to lift themselves out of there because this is the best country in the world 
and uh, the opportunities here are insane compared to what you can see overseas. So sorry for being so passionate about it, but um, the opportunities are there and let's go and get it. Yeah, don't apologise, mate. I 100% agree with you. And and I, I had my own Kiyosaki moment way back in, I think it was 1997 uh, from memory. Yeah, Robert Kiyosaki was actually in Adelaide at the time and I, and I got dragged along to see him. And uh, I'll never forget him saying that the, the moment passive income becomes a part of your life, your life will change. And uh, it, it sounds very similar for you. Overnight, I started to look at the world completely differently, John. A I, light bulb uh, moment, right? It, absolute light bulb moment. So uh, he's got a lot to blame for, Robert Kiesa. <laughs> yeah, it certainly does. The mongrel made me get into mortgage brokerage. God, he would he would want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, before, before we sort of, uh, I'd love to unpack your own property journey in a bit more detail, but before we do that, can you tell us something unique or interesting about you that you've never shared before in public? Ah, okay. Something I haven't shared before in public, but this is interesting, but I was born in New Guinea and I was born under the United Nations flag. So I could have been anything in the world. And so uh, I could have been English, Swiss, American. And God bless my mum, she made me Uruguayan. <laughs> so I love Uruguay. Great, cool little country if you haven't been there. Very yeah. cool people. But in terms of the ability to live in Switzerland or be you know, be American or whatever. Yeah. So there you go. And my mum was registered as the very first Uruguayan ever to ever go to New Guinea in the late 60s. And and her letters actually got published in the in the Montevideo Herald. And many years ago when I went to visit my grandparents, they actually brought out the newspaper articles on the front cover. And there was me in, in colour, actually. There's a photo of me standing beside this little New Guinean native girl and her full-on blown you know, feathers out of the hair and stuff like that, and me wearing these uh, Uruguayan colours of a football team. And that was just the clash of clashes of multiculturalism exploding in the late 60s and an amazing, amazing letter. But um, I love that, mate. I, I actually worked in New Guinea for a couple of years myself, uh, way way back in the early 80s. So I, I worked for an ex-key-up or patrol officer who got the golden handshake and decided to stay on, and he, he married a... Uh, a um uh, one of the locals uh, oh, wow. who, who was related to Michael Samari at the time, who was the prime minister for for, for many years, and uh, I was the bunny who became his company architect. So I, I worked in Port Moresby. I spent some time in a little spot called Tufi on the northeast coast, uh, right. and and spent some time up in Rabaul because that's where his wife was from. Uh, what an amazing country, mate! Uh, yeah, I, I don't know whether you've got fond memories of the place, but uh, it was it's just a oh. Yeah, definitely want to go back and fish the Sepik River. Another thing people don't know about me is I'm a mad fisherman, so if you love me, if you want to get on my good side, tell me you love Alfa Romeos and fishing, and I'm done. I'll just sign on the dotted line. Um, but, yeah, Sepik art is very, very cool. Um, yeah. It's very underrated. And the other interesting about New Guinea is it was the foundation of all the Pacific islands and the vegetation that went out into the islands like Fiji and Cook Islands and stuff. So it's New Guinea that's known as the second Amazon who, who really provided the catalyst of the vegetation that went out in that direction. Yeah. So amazing, amazing place. A very rich country. I think there's 350-odd different languages uh, in New Guinea. And let's face it, 50 years ago, they were cutting off each other's head and, and killing yeah. each other. Uh, yeah. So they've come a long way in a very short space of time, but a, a really interesting country to spend some time, mate. So uh, 
Uh, we'll, we'll talk about that, that, that some other time. But uh, just shifting the focus a little bit, uh, uh, given that background, and you, you mentioned you came from a fairly humble background. Uh, if you look back on your life so far, what, what challenging event has brought about your greatest learnings and your biggest changes then? Yeah, so I grew up in a very poor household in back in the day when Leichhardt in Sydney was, you know, very much an immigrant working class suburb. And my father was a truck driver and my mum was a, a bookkeeper. And we did it really tough, Bushy. There were there were times when I even had to give all of my paper, paper run. Do you remember that paper run money <laughs> to uh to my parents because the stove blew up? And I remember giving them all the money because my mum was crying. We, we didn't have money. Makes me emotional thinking about it. Um to to pay for it. And so I started realizing that um you know, I better not learn my money habits from my parents. And ultimately their relationship ended and and at the time was so young, I thought it was all about money. But later on in life I knew it was more to it than just money. But it really set it set in stone that I had to master this thing called money. Yeah. Uh, particularly when I was having cold showers in winter after my parents' divorce and I was living with my mum and she couldn't afford to replace, you know, the heater. So when you when you get that sort of you know, toughness that creates, you can either bend and buckle and, and just and become a victim or you go the other way. And thankfully, I went the other way and put some steel in my spine and said, right, what do we do to get out of this bloody mess? Yeah. Yeah. And so um, a journey started where outside of formal education from university, I started looking for ways to improve like everyone else. And I started reading the books and going to those seminars in the early 90s. And, and I always thought if I can just walk away with one gold nugget, I'll learn something. And so all these great books that are now classics, you know, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, all those um, are sitting in my library uh, there. And I just became a sponge. And the obvious thing that came out of every single one of them was this concept of creating some sort of trail income yeah. or income that gets created where you're not expending the energy. Yeah. And so property, I realised from everyone that I interviewed, not interviewed, but became sort of mentors informally, was always a massive component of their wealth. So I thought, all right, I better master that. And then um, when it came to shares, I realised that you can rent shares out for a living and it's writing covered calls. Yeah. And I thought, wow, you know, everyone buys shares for it to grow up, to go up in value, but little do people realise you can actually rent shares out for a living. Yeah. And so I yeah, started this journey and... Um, after I finished my um, me uh, medical healthcare industry career, I made it my life's mission to start a business where I could go out there, just like you, Bushy, trying to help people as much as possible to change their life. Yeah, not as easy, <laughs> not as easy done, though, Bushy, as you know. No, um, but but we, I think the simple story is, mate. We we can we we can lead a horse to water, we can't make a drink. But at least if we yeah. we're showing them where the where the dam is and where the river is that, that they can drink, then it's giving them an opportunity, John. And yeah. uh, and it's uh, not a mirage. It really is there. 100%. You, you and I both know uh, if you do the right things and it's it's not an easy journey, but it, but, it, but it's a very rewarding journey at the end of the day. Yeah, so I'd, I'd love to dive into that a little bit now. And I, I want to go way back, mate. Uh, when, when you were starting to do the reading and you're looking at property, uh, what were your initial fears and feelings of concern about investing in property uh, before you actually got in? Can you remember? Yeah, like everything that your listeners are going through right now, uh, it could be anything from do I really deserve, am I worthy of being wealthy, which is, believe it or not, a lot of people still don't think they are worthy of that, that lifestyle they're thinking of, right through who do I trust to start the journey, right through to like how does lending work, 
right through to what sort of property should I be buying? And as you know, mate, there was never anyone that you could really go to like you that could put the whole jigsaw together. You kind of went here and went there. And back in the day, there was this thing called the Residex reports and you were, yep. remember that, Bushy? I do, mate, I do. Yeah. Those uh, For those listeners who are not old, as old as I am, you used to be able to buy these reports. And um, my wife working at Qantas, we'd jump on a plane and we literally jumped on a plane seven times before we bought in Brizzy because we were checking out the suburbs that you could get in that Residex top 100 postcode predictions or something like that. So a lot of a lot of feet on the ground, a lot of laughter, a lot of tears. But, yeah, just really going out there and just be absolutely determined to try and um, make it happen. And we did get a bit of help, Bushy. I can't take all the credit. Lynette's father and father, my father-in-law, he was an old-school um, Croatian builder who built these beautiful townhouses. You don't get them built like that anymore, like double brick, huge townhouse. Yeah. Um, but we bought one at a daughter's price, and with that we were able to use some of that equity to leverage, right? So I'm not standing here saying, you know, I had, you know, um, this amazing journey from poverty. I did actually have at one point in my life a little bit of help and made it, made it work for me as hard as I could anyway. Mate, yeah. uh, a lot of people have similar opportunities and 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 don't follow through, mate. So you, you've uh, really paid paid your father more a great compliment uh, by by achieving what you have. But I, I'd, I'd love for you to sort of then take us through your uh, property journey a little bit because you know to, to put eleven properties together by the time you're thirty two is no no mean feat in in anyone's language. And and you talked about the the thirteen thousand uh, dollar townhouse in Canberra, which. And I, I thought my first property property was cheap, man. That was eighty four grand at thirteen grand. That's just that was yeah outside of Canberra. Yeah, so I never ended up buying that because I thought this is just too good to yeah. be true. Um, yeah, but yeah, it was a combination of all sorts of properties, you know, that uh, I thought at the time had capital growth prospects. I wasn't, I was probably to my detriment not focused on the cash flow as much as I should have been. Um, because from an early age, and this was a big mistake, it kept being drummed in my head that, you know, taxes, you're paying too much tax, you're becoming paying too much tax, and therefore you need to do something to um, reduce your tax, which was completely against what Kiyosaki was saying. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, those 11 properties were, were pretty good, but could have done better. Everything's easy in hindsight. I think the important thing there, though, is that, you know, as I, I said a lot of, I don't know about you, I said a lot of investors who are looking for the perfect property and, and therefore yeah. they waste years before they even get onto the starting grid. Uh, whereas if it's, as long as the, the major parameters are there, it's never going to be perfect. And and time uh, can be a, a great benefactor when it comes to the, the property exercise. Uh, talk us briefly through, uh, you know, how your uh portfolio did progress uh, and and share some of the the good the bad and the ugly on that journey if you don't mind yes sure mate so um we used a lot of those properties to help us upgrade our owner occupied house so there was a time when we had the kids and went right we went as big as those townhouses were um we needed to boom into a house and um we moved we were very lucky we moved we bought in a place called sylvania waters yep uh, which is a lovely uh, non-trendy suburb an affluent suburb of city Yep. And, um, yeah, so we sold quite a bit of that portfolio. And, every, again, you, sh- you look back and go, I shouldn't have sold it, but it helped us get to this point. Um, and then I've since sold that house in Sylvania Waters and I'm now living in a beautiful 
um, tidal waterfront in a suburb called Yowie Bay in Sydney, and I finally got my dream home, even though I've got a big mortgage, and so I'm exposing my warts and all here. It's good, mate. Uh, yeah. it, it could have gone the other way where we could have gone, okay, uh, we'll buy a house and have no debt, or let's live the dream, the Sydney dream. For most people is to be on the or near the water, yeah. and I love my fishing, so I've got a little tinny sitting in the back there. Um, <laughs> I don't get to use it that much. But in terms of the journey along the way, the biggest mistakes I made was uh, I somehow started believing property spruikers and I bought uh, three of my properties were off the plan and they're rubbish, absolute rubbish. Mm. So we'll talk about this more in the podcast, mate. But yeah, biggest biggest things I'll, in, <laughs> I've learned is just try and um, never, never buy off the plan or brand new. And I, I apologize to anyone who has or is selling those things right now. So please, my profuse apologies. But yeah, I look back now, I've held those for 10 years and they've hardly grown. And I'll maybe just be able to get my money back if not a little bit more. But the opportunity cost, as you know, Bushy, was quite huge. So yeah. how do I put one of the a normal house, say in, in Brisbane, instead of that off the plan apartment in Brisbane, you know, it would have been many, many hundreds of thousands of dollars better off. Yeah, but it, it's it's the old story though. It's it's the lessons we learn that then improve the journey from that point on. And it's often our biggest obstacles that, that give us those learnings, John. So uh, I really appreciate you sharing that. But I'd i also love you if you can remember what what was your investment strategy when you first started out, and how has it evolved over time as your knowledge and comfort with the whole exercises uh, has increased. It was pretty simple, mate. Just get as much property as I can. <laughs> it was really no theory. There was no science behind it. That's just all I knew is that anyone who knew it was rich, they had this thing called property and let's go off and get it. And so I attended the seminars and some of them were developers selling their own stock. Others were, you know, guys selling education courses. But really it was just build that asset base. And I knew at the time I was so young that even if I stuffed up, you know, over time, if I held it for 20, 30 years, I'd be okay. Yeah, and and like like everyone's portfolio, you have some that even if you try and stuff it up, they grow spectacularly and they just do their thing, and then others you just go, what was I thinking, you know? <clears throat> but action bushy, that's the thing, you know. In the end, it all sort of washed out. Could I have done better? Absolutely, but I've, I've, you've learned so much along the way, and the journey now is one where I only use data now. Data, data, data is. I will never believe anyone's opinion. I will never believe the media. If I can't prove something by the use of data, where there's a positive correlation coefficient with capital growth, forget it. It's it's just not gonna it's just not gonna happen. Yeah, I so, love that, mate. No, it, it's yeah, because opinion is very cheap, uh, but but the data doesn't lie. And and I, I want to drill into some of that data uh, shortly when we, we we get into that. But uh, if we were if you were looking back on on your journey so far, then mate, if you were starting out again, uh, what would you invest in differently, if anything? I probably would have focused a bit more on regional. Um, we're going to talk about this in a moment, I hope. But there is so much opportunity in regional Australia. And back in the day, you know, you, you, probably people still saying this. You know, don't you know buy near the CBD, buy near the beach. You know, don't buy in regional. And the data behind this couldn't be further from the truth. There is. Yeah, so now knowing the data and then using regressive coefficient analysis, we now know for a fact, at least going back to 1990 anyway, yep. that the regional markets do track capital city markets. Yep. 
So for those listeners who do have what may have may seem to be a modest budget, say three fifty, and even less, like you've got, you guys have got a wonderful opportunity if you can open up your eyes and just trust the data. And I've got, I've got a, I've got a. Um, if anyone's interested, I've got, I've got a wonderful article I've sent out to my database talking about um, data and how it tracks regional markets do track and sometimes outperform the capital city markets. So it's um. And I take no credit for that. I, I, I um, commissioned some work from uh, a wonderful, humble gentleman called Jeremy Shepard from DSR or now known as Suburb Finder. Yep. Um, amazing service if you want to subscribe to that, DSR, or he's turning that into Suburb Finder. So I got Jeremy to create all these articles to help me understand how to use data because I'm an idiot, but he's not. And Amazing. It was just amazing. So, yes, I would have bought in regional Australia, and that could be Wollongong, that could be um, Wagga Wagga, um, far, north, I mean, far north Queensland right now, Bushy. Wow, what a place to be investing. Yeah. You know, the yields are great. You can often find houses, not units or townhouses, but houses that pay for themselves. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's probably what I would have done differently, Bushy. And what about you, mate? Let's ask you, what would you have done differently? Uh, very, very similar, actually, mate, because uh, we, we probably would turn into the same exercise. Uh, I, I just would have started earlier than what I did, uh, number one, because, you know, time is a massive factor in, in your results if you're buying the right property in the right way in the in the right place. So I would have would have started a lot earlier. I would have avoided some of the procrastination. I, I, I tend to be a bit of a... Uh, what's the word, mate? Uh, analysis paralysis is often what I suffer from. So you can sort of bury yourself in too much data uh, to the point where you don't do anything and you don't do anything quickly enough. So I, I sort of learned to temper that over time. So that that's probably the the exercise that I would, and but but taking the action as you said before, mate. That that, that is the key piece in this whole thing. Yeah. Uh, you won't get it one hundred percent right. But uh, as, as I know you're about to share with us, uh, given the importance of location uh, on the exercise, rather than uh, worrying about the colour of the skirting and, and uh, the tiles and the splashback in the kitchen, uh, if you put your energy into the data that's telling you what's happening in, the lo- in that location, that's the thing that's going to drive uh, a, a lot of your results down the track. But mate, before we sort of get, get into this, because we're I'm, I'm liking where this is going already, uh, and you've, you've worked uh, with a lot of uh, investors yourself over the years. What, what, what are some of the biggest mistakes that you see people making around both borrowing money and investing in property uh, in your experience? Well, I think the same what you're saying, Bushy. Um, I think oh, a couple of things come to mind just to the top of my head. Taking advice from well, well-meaning friends and family who really their only understanding is possibly their own home, maybe one investment property. So that couldn't that can be so damaging to your ultimate portfolio and your wealth creation. All right. So I see that often, and you would see that too. That, you know, they're well-meaning father, auntie, successful business person, that's an uncle, may have given some advice that's just not correct. Yeah. That's that's one that I see. Uh the second one is just sentiment. You know, you can feel it. People go, oh no, I better not buy now. Oh, because I'm reading this and I'm feeling this from what people at work or I'm reading it in the media and, and not realising that that sentiment is if you're going to follow the herd, you're just going to get what the herd is always going to get in their life. Yeah. You're going to be 95, you're going to be a 95 percenter. 
Yeah, 100%. And I mean, the uh, greatest living investor, Warren Buffett, uh, you know, that, that famous old cliched saying, you know, be greedy when people are being fearful and, and be fearful when people are being greedy. Uh, it's it's never uh, been more appropriate than what we're currently seeing, given that the media is haven't got too many other things to scare us about now, mate. So property and interest rates have become a, a punching bag that uh, is, is being used regularly to scare the living hell out of all of us so that we, one, keep focusing on the news, but two, don't do anything else. So I think you, you're spot on there. Now, uh, I know it's something that I, I really like about uh, how you operate uh, in the finance space is that you're a big proponent of power brokers. So uh, for those that don't even know what a power broker is, can you talk to us about how uh, a power broker is important in, a, in your mortgage broker's team and how they can actually improve your buying capacity? Thanks, Bushy. Thanks for bringing this out to the wider audience. It's a new, it's a new uh, player in the mortgage brokering industry. So a para broker, P-A-R-A. It's a bit like parallel to the financial planning industry where a financial planner might have a para planner. So what a para broker is, is typically someone who has extensive experience in banking and lending. But that person may not have done all the the qualifications to become a licensed credit advisor or a mortgage broker. And so here you are, you've got someone with, say, 20 years worth of banking experience at ANZ, CBA, insert your own bank. And what they can do is they can support the mortgage broker in doing a deeper dive and a broader analysis of your lending options. Now, let me put this into context. And this is what happens, as you know, Bushy, in the life of a mortgage broker. A mortgage broker, the good ones, are run off their feet with inquiries. And what typically happens is we all want to help that person, but we may not have the time to do the deep analysis that's required. Now, as Bushy alluded to right at the start, it's not just about the interest rate, but it, it could also be about the credit policies that can help you move forward. Now, if you've got six inquiries like I've had today, <laughs> it becomes a task of trying to meet everyone's expectations and almost choosing which ones that you want to help. And you want to help them all. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. So rather than saying no, what we're suggesting is why don't you think about recruiting a power broker and paying for that power broker? In my case, my power brokers charge $700. I don't get anything out of it. I just use the money to pay them. And what you've done is you've recruited your broker with extra manpower. So what's going to happen is that broker that you trust is no longer at the precipice of saying yes or no. They're going to say, right, Bob and Jane have just got me the resources I need to go off to my business development manager at Macquarie, Pepper and AMP Yep. to workshop your probationary period as a contractor with a with a loan to value ratio that's sitting at 84%. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. These are the sorts of things that a broker knows he needs to do, but because he's got to feed his kids at the end of the month, he's got to focus on those deals they're going to get through. Yep. So if you're not getting the service that you're looking for, if you're not getting the answers you're looking for, don't be shy to tell your broker, can you bring on your team a para broker? I'm prepared to invest in my future and I want to resource you 
with an extra person to make sure that my file gets looked after because you're relying respectfully on the generosity of that broker who is interviewing you just as much as you're interviewing them as to whether they can deliver that wealth that you're looking for. Absolutely, mate. You make a brilliant point. And I I think uh, the key thing that anyone listening to this needs to take away is to actually ask your broker, have you got a power broker, Uh, number one? Uh, And secondly, do encourage them to do so, as you've just said. uh, You know, like yourself, John, uh, one of our, uh, we've got a power broker who used to be a broker, but their lifestyle is such that they, they just can't be doing the hours that they used to. They've got all the head knowledge. Uh, so yeah. they can do exactly, they can do the scenario analysis and come up with the best option because they've got the time without having to answer phone calls every every second of the day to be able to yeah. come up with the, the best fit for what that particular client uh, is looking to achieve. So I, I think that's a, an awesome exercise. But I, I want to shift now on to, you know, what we started off in the intro talking about, and that is the importance of buying capacity. Uh, and I, I know that uh, you've... Uh, can share with us the difference between uh, what's called a non-ADI and an ADI banking lending institution and what this means to your buying power. Can you explain what, for, for those who don't know what an ADI is, what that means, and then uh, what is the difference in relation to capacity that flows from that? Thank you, Bashi. Great, great, great topic to bring up. So ADI, Australian Deposit Taking Institution, and non-ADI, non-deposit, Australian Deposit Taking Institution. In a nutshell, what APRA have done is for those banks and lenders that are deposit-taking institution have basically put a buffer. So where you and I, at the time of recording, are thinking 6% for your interest-only loan, when the bank looks at you, they have to put a buffer. And what do you think, Bushy? 3% on average? 3%, yep. Yeah, so they're assessing you at 9%. Now, the really good news is if you're prepared to pay a little bit more in interest, then there are these non-deposit-taking institutions that aren't bound by APRA regulations and can somewhat reduce the buffers. So it may not be 3%. It might be, I don't know, Bushy, what do you reckon, 25 Yep, 25 Yeah, so it may not sound like a lot, but all of a sudden it might make the difference between that third or fourth investment property that you're trying to look at. So don't be shy to look outside of the big four and all the brand names that spend millions in marketing to you, the non-ADI institutions want your business and actually have the credit policies in place to help you. Yeah. So in summary, um, you can delineate between the lenders in a non-ADI type of way and an ADI type of way, and hopefully you can qualify with with those, um, those ADI lenders that you know of. But if you don't, don't be shy. It's money is all the same. Don't be shy to go to the other guys that aren't bound by APRA. Exactly. Because what you want is that next property, that that next four hundred thousand dollar property that one day might turn into five, six, seven, eight hundred million dollars. Yeah. Who cares if you pay one percent more when you've got yourself set up? Hey, bushy. One hundred percent, mate. You're uh, certainly talking my language there. Uh, while we're talking about borrowing capacity uh, the, and borrowing power, have you got any other other tips that? Uh, uh, you can share with us to improve capacity? Oh, I can be here all day, <laughs> Bushy. Um, look, the first one I would I would say to you is try and find a broker that specialises in what you're trying to do, yeah. okay? And it's, it's really important that you find a broker that's experienced into it. So if you're trying to build wealth, try and find that broker that's really, really good because what brokers are good at, we're good at everything. We're like the GPs of the medical world for a better term. 
But then you'll find there are GPs that have some specialty in gynecology or something like that. And then you get the specialists. And that's what you want. If you want to build wealth, you want the specialist. And the reason is the following. Mortgage brokers get, I don't know, 30 emails a day from various banks. Now, if you specialize in growing a portfolio for your clients, which which lenders do you think you're going to pay attention to? The one that's just advertised what they're doing for first homeowners or the one that's just advertised saying that we've now improved our borrowing capacity for investors? It's physically impossible for brokers to know everything about all the different niches of finance. So if you can find that broker that is really good at investment property lending, they will naturally have an instinct of where to take your business to, number one. All right? That's number one. Yeah, I could be here for ages talking about this. <laughs> number two, um, make sure your broker's team behind them, you've got a team behind them because the broker may have a lot of experience in their head, but if the broker doesn't have the team to execute it for you, you're going to be frustrated policies, um, applications will be submitted incorrectly and things like that. So I can't stress that enough that you're looking not just at the broker but the, the ecosystem that the broker brings into the lender. Yeah. Okay? yeah. Um, I don't know. There's, there's a few more. At the moment, there's some lenders with fixed rates where they'll only put a little bit of a buffer, 0.25% of a buffer on your fixed rate. So if you fix your rate, and at the moment of recording, one-year fixed rates are lower than some variable rates. So that's not a bad year, not a bad idea to do it. So all of a sudden, you've stopped the buffer being 3%. It could be just 0.25%. Um, common debt reducer is another one. Uh, this is where you can help um, mitigate that joint debt that you've got with, say, a partner. And if you can prove that your partner can carry their portion of the debt, then that debt doesn't get added to your liabilities. Yeah. Yeah. So, mate, you and I could be here on a completely oh, I love it, mate. separate but, hour. But, but the, the really important thing uh, that you just touched on is, is make sure that you're getting a, a broker on your team who specialises in the area you're looking to borrow the money. Uh, Absolutely. So if investment is your piece, then make sure that you're dealing with a broker who want invest in property themselves so they, they understand the, the ins and outs of what, what that's about. And therefore, their knowledge is going to be focused on lending solutions and lending structures that are going to increase capacity, minimise your costs and minimise your risk. So uh, yeah. some absolute gold you've shared with us. And, yeah, Bush, just an example, just to really hone, hone it in. What I love doing for clients with those with equity is I love setting up cash out facilities so you can make yep. cash offers yep. because you and I know that the mortgage isn't really what the client wants. What we're really trying to deliver is wealth. Yep. And we're absolutely at the pointy end of trying to get the acquisition right. Yep. Now, if you were in this moment in time, Perth, very hot market, yep. uh, my clients are winning because they've got the cash offer. Yep. So rather than getting a pre-approval to buy that $400,000, $500,000 property, we set up a cash-out facility yep. with those lenders that allow you to put all of that, take that money out and not put it on black, yep. but put it on property. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's how that's how an experienced investment property broker will think, right? What do I do to help my client get ahead? It's not about the mortgage as much. It's about trying to build that portfolio. Yeah, I love that. Mate. On the other side of that is, you know, I occasionally get inquiries from developers wanting development finance. I can do it, but I'm not good at it. And so I'll refer it to another broker who's really, really good at it. 
you know, and you know, mate, I'm happy. I've done my good deed for the day. Same. We're exactly the same. Horses for courses. Uh, and and uh, for those that are listening into this conversation, one of the obvious lit- litmus tests around the quality of the broker, if the first thing the broker starts to talk to you about is the rate, then you're probably backing the wrong horse. Because uh, as I said uh, in the intro, uh, very easy to boil it down to that ver- very simple uh, lowest common denominator. But that's just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to actually getting the right finance solution. Mate, uh, I'm going to get you back to, to drill into that subject in, in more detail in a, in a future episode because uh, we're going to just scratch the surface of uh, some of the gold that you can share in that regard. But I want to sort of now move into the investment property space, given we've started to talk about it. And you mentioned earlier about uh, regressive coefficient analysis. Uh, talk to us a bit more about that in terms of the need to focus on this in order to fast-track capital growth. Can you put some shape around that for us? Yeah, mate, with pleasure. So part of that journey I've gone through is trying to find people smarter than me that understand data and not make it boring and make it applicable. So one of the pleasures I've had in life is being able to now understand that it's the suburb that you buy in that causes 70 to 80% of the capital growth, not the property yeah. And I, I never realised that, and this might be new to a lot of listeners as well. So we now know for a fact, using what's called regressive coefficient analysis, that it's the suburb, respectfully, if I can encourage you to do so, to focus on. You know, you spend 80% of your time finding the suburb because, you know, rising tide lifts all boats and you can almost buy the wrong property and still make money if the, if that suburb is growing in value. And it's really exciting because Australia has 15,500 suburbs. And once you understand that each one of those are individual property markets, you can be beside yourself thinking, I'm living in a country that's like a candy store or a lolly shop. Yeah. Like, you, which one do you go for? The strawberry creams or the snakes or the, <laughs> or the caramellos? <laughs> it becomes like that, whereas everyone just kept walking past the lolly shop thinking it's further down the road when there really is 15,500 suburbs that you can analyse and quite quickly determine using data whether it's worth your money. Okay? Yeah. Well, um, let's transition that because you touched on this earlier on the conversation, but uh, from a property investment location perspective then, uh, how does the big smoke compare with the regions from the data perspective? So I'm underlying the data. Oh, another, sort of yeah, thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, so what we know using probably data that is as good as probably 1990. Um, we know for a fact now that the regional suburbs or significant urban areas, they're called SUAs, yeah. uh, are just as good as the major capital cities. So it irks me and frustrates me when I hear good people say, I can't afford to buy or invest because I've only got a budget of only $500,000, which is still fantastic if you right. open up your eyes to these opportunities that are sitting outside of the stereotypical media analysis that you're stereotypically going to receive in the media. It, it annoys me when I start to hear about the homogeneous nature of the property market when you're reading in the market, when you're reading the media. Like you hear about it going up or down, but you know, let's say Sydney's gone up this, but I'm like, and Melbourne's gone up this or but where? Like which suburb are you talking about? So yeah. uh, to your point, Bushy, Far North Queensland at the moment, at the time of recording at the end of May 2023, is an unbelievable opportunity to pick up houses on good-sized blocks with yields of 6.5%. Yeah. 
Now, this is not financial advice, but there are so many wonderful suburbs that have got um, the 30 data metrics that I use that have a positive correlation coefficient with capital growth that are destined for growth. And what do I mean by this? What what sort of examples can I give you? We can can do another session, I mean, an entire hour on this, but when you see stock on market below 1.3%, that's a very tight market. And then when you add another data metric, where you see, say, 30 people looking in that suburb, you instantly start to see a lot of demand, not enough supply. Great. Then you can start overlaying that with tracking the price growth, saying, has it grown too much already or is it just started growing a little bit? So you can make a judgment call. Um, Vendor discounting. Is the vendor having to drop its price to get the sale away or is, in fact, is it a negative vendor discounting, meaning they're actually getting more than what the agent is saying? Yeah. So these are just some examples of the data metrics that you can buy to help you intelligently make that property acquisition, and it'll prove to you without a shadow of a doubt that that regional part of Australia has the fundamentals for it to grow. Yeah. And I'm also... Yeah, uh, on a side note, I love buying properties that pay themselves as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it might be a little bit hard nowadays, but yeah, it's it's getting more challenging. But there's some clever structuring things you can do to uh, it's still putting yourself in a position where the property's bobbing its own face. Uh, you've touched on some of this already as well, and I'd, I'd I'd love your read on what you think are the true drivers of long term growth, then, John. So, from thirty years personally, and 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 professionally looking at others who've built 200 plus portfolios and and what I've studied professionally, there are three main things. Yeah. Firstly, and apologies to anyone who sells brand new properties, don't buy brand new, okay? What we, what we do know for a fact now is that it doesn't grow anywhere near as much as an established property. And I don't have the time, unfortunately, to go for it like, or the ability to bring up the charts. But we know for a fact now that new doesn't grow anywhere near as strong as established. I, I reckon there's one exception to that, and that is, is. If you're building in a, a tightly held area where you're not in, in acres of greenfield exercise, but if you're doing gentrification within a, an existing tightly held suburb uh, where you're building again the benefits of stamp duty and potentially uh, depreciation growth from a cash flow perspective, given as long as the other growth drivers are in that particular location, you can still do okay. But if you're yeah. out there amongst the masses where there is acres of undeveloped land yet to be built on, then 100% agree, mate. It's a- and that's the second point I have. Buy in built-up areas. Yeah. So if you do buy a brand-new property, I'm not recommending it, sorry, Bushy, but um, if you buy in that uh, area where there's no more land, there's no potential for, for to be swamped by by. Um, lots of properties. So examples of that are, like you said, Bushy, the western suburbs of Melbourne, right? It's an unlimited supply. And as each estate comes on, there'll be more and more properties coming on board. Um, some of the places between the Gold Coast and Brisbane, I think Pimpama comes to mind. Again, another area where there's lots of estates in that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So the second point out of the three is make sure you buy in a built-up area where there's just no more supply. Okay. Uh, and then the third one is buy a house. Yeah. yeah. Well, we know for a fact now using data that houses have always outperformed um, 
every other form of, of property, yep. uh, yeah, obviously units. Now, having said that, I have also recommended to clients to buy townhouses. Yep. Now, only when they've missed the boat to buy a house. And to give you an example to make it clear, we, we had some clients that had no, no, no exposure to the Brisbane market and they had exposure to other markets and they needed some exposure to Brisbane. They'd missed the boat to buy a house. It had already been 40, 50% growth, yep. but the townhouses hadn't started their journey yet. And so there were pockets of Brisbane where, and it happens like clockwork, the townhouses will eventually start moving. Yep. So in those areas where there was no more land supply, they couldn't build any more townhouses, it was landlocked. There was reasons to suggest that buying a townhouse would have done very well, and it did, because the delta between the two had blown out. So if, say, for example, there was a difference of only 150 grand, yep. it blown out to, say, 500 grand because houses had taken off, and those people in that area wanted to stay in that area, and they would stay and then end up buying a townhouse. Yep. There you go. Again, so what in I summary, yeah. I, I love what you've just shared there because, again, uh, it's very dangerous to use blanket generalizations when it comes to property. And yes, there's some rough rules of thumb, but you've got to look specifically at what's happening in that particular location and, and de demand supply scarcity factors around that. So, where, where that data, again, I'm emphasizing the data, is telling you that there's a demand for that type of accommodation in a particular location. Uh, and you can quantify that. Go for it. Anything works. So, you know, I, I talk a lot about generalisations around, you know, the sweet spot being a home on a block of dirt because that's where most Australians live and want to live, either rent or buy. So you, you're uh, really minimising the risk by uh, soaking in that as long as all the other growth drivers are, are sitting around it. But, uh, mate, uh, well, I'm definitely going to get you back to, to dive into that in more detail. What I, I'd love to sort of uh, pivot now into is, is the uh, chat around the builder broker exercise because I know you're you're really pioneering that industry. Yeah, can you talk to us a bit about what is it, why you're doing it, and and how can uh, listeners uh, get on board with it if uh, if it's the right thing for them? Thanks, Bushy. Very very grateful for the opportunity to let the world know a little bit about what a builder broker is. Uh, it came from the era of the Royal Commission. Um, <laughs> you may remember this, Bushy, particularly. Uh, the mortgage industry was facing an existential crisis. We we it, we came this close, listeners, to losing that industry. And so uh, my wife and I looked at each other and said, what are we going to do? And my wife, coming from a building family, had realised, and I think most people realise there is a need for someone to help uh, select a builder. Yeah. So from the ashes of the Royal Commission, there was... Uh, uh, the, the birth of builder finders, builderfinders.com.au. And what it is, is the way, best way to think of it is your mortgage broker has a panel of lenders. Just replace those lenders with a panel of vetted builders. Yep. And so there are builders, and you would know this as an ex-architect, Bushy, that do heritage work, and there are, we could help you with that. There are builders who specialise in commercial work, and we can help you with that. Yep. There are builders who are very good with what's called KDRs, knockdown rebuilds, yep. um, duplexes, et cetera, et cetera. And so through a process of vetting the builders to get on the panel, we make no apologies just to start the 62 questions they need to answer just to start. Yep. We go into their financials to see if they're financially stable. 
we ring their staff to see what they're like to work for that builder because, as you know, guys, it's always the tradies on the job, not the builder that executes. Get right. And then finally, uh, we've got a scope of works. It's a 32-page scope of works, which is phenomenal in making sure that when the builder tenders, that they are very specific. Because one of the biggest problems is that I can we see people make is that they ask a builder to tender, but they're not specific enough in the sense that, um, let me give an example, that front door in your dwelling, the builder doesn't know if you want a really, really cool, expensive-looking, impressive door Yep. Or if you'd be happy with a standard specification, so in the drop-down box is four things for that door. Yep. Or if you're happy with a Bunnings special. Yep. So think about the number of doors in your house. If you can tell the builder, that front door, I want it to be impressive, but the laundry door, I don't care if it's a Bunnings thing. Yep. If you tell them that, then the builder is able to specifically quantify what that cost is. Yep. And then when you think about all the other decisions, let's use the toilet. Um, the toilet and the laundry, you don't really care if it's a bunning special, but you might want the Japanese very special toilet yeah. in, in your ensuite, and he can budget for that. Yeah. yeah. So we, the builder broker is a, a lot like your mortgage broker where uh, we can help you f- find, firstly, the builder that has an appetite for your work because the good ones are interviewing you just as much as you're interviewing them, as you know, Bushy. Yeah. Um, and then we help you tender in a way that you may not have realised can help you. We can almost, not guarantee, but we know through the process we save you 10 to 15% based on um, the concept of what we've done with previous clients over the last five years. Yeah, I, I love them. I, I love the fact that you're actually educating the the uh, clients to get very specific about exactly what they want so that you're then going to get an apples for apples comparison from the builders that are actually submitting prices on the exercise. And, and I, I'm assuming that, you know, I know, I'm putting on my old architect's architects hat from many years ago, but I I used to notice that when, when we were tendering projects and it was more on the commercial side of the equation in those days, but the quality of the site foreman or the construction manager was absolutely critical to how well the job would go from a time quality and cost perspective. Uh, so it doesn't matter how good the name is on the on the plate. It, the experience of the guy on the who's the orchestra leader on site, basically, who's pulling all the strings to make it all happen, is that an yeah, essential part of your assessment? There, yeah, that's the first a good point. That's that's arguably the first person that we'll ring and say, "Can we have the number and the contact details of foreman? How long do we ring him and say, are you getting treated right? Because if he's just about to leave, forget it. Um, are you getting well remunerated and compensated in this day and age? That's important." Um, and a whole bunch of things. And we, we ring the site foreman because they control the site, as you know, yeah. right through to the suppliers. So that electrical contractor selling all the electrical stuff, are you getting paid on time? Um, the timber yards uh, and things like that. But back to your point, mate, it's the staff on site that really, really, really needs to be drilled down hard on. Well, I, I, I uh, fully commend yourself and your good wife for, for driving that initiative. I think it's a, a big need in the industry for both sides, actually, for the builders as well as the clients, and particularly in an environment where at the moment where there's a lot of confidence being lost in the construction industry given the, the headlines that we keep reading about some of the major builders uh, going to liquidation. So by stiffening up that process and, and protecting both sides of the equation, uh, you know, I, I'm a big believer in, in building. If you really want to get what you want, then building is a way to do it. But you need to be very careful about how you do that. And with, yeah. with yourself and, and your good wife sitting on the client side of the table, 
then you're you're really upping the ante in relation to given the the sort of protections that they're looking for to get a really good result, mate. So uh, we'll, we'll talk more about that uh, in future episodes as well, John. Just but, sorry, mate. And just one more thing. Uh, it, there's there's a small seven hundred dollar engagement fee. Okay, just to start, it gets refunded to you at the end. And the, the good news is we get paid by the builder. So, you know, that service is there for you and um, you can benefit from the experience that we can bring to the table. So really, really excited. It's it's absolutely exploding. And um, I'll, let my, I'll let Lynette go on the show one day where you guys can talk about it further. We definitely will. And, and I, I like the model that you just shared there because it's very very similar to the finance broking exercise where the, the banks pay the, the brokers an upfront and a trial commission for placing the loan. Uh, in, in this case, if the builders are all effectively contributing to that exercise so that it's at very low cost to the the uh, person who's wanting to get the property built, uh, but still giving them the insurances around the time quality cost can exercise, that's a bit of a no-brainer. So We brought uh, the compliance, Bushy, further to what you said, we brought the compliance in the mortgage broking industry into this builder broking industry. So Builder Finders is held uh, to a standard that we hope continues to rise, but it's a pretty high bar. Everything is uh, transparent. Uh, there's codes of conduct. Uh, if you need to make a complaint about builder finders, this is where you can go and make the complaint, uh, things like that. So you never know, mate. There might be a day when um, there's an industry body that's like the Mortgage Finance Association of Australia and an equivalent where I can help develop that industry even further and help Australians with their dreams to build Love it, mate. I love the the fact that you're taking action and that that big need opportunity, mate. So, uh, but I yeah, I know we could talk for hours. We've only just scratched the surface, but uh, I, I am going to get you back uh, on a number of occasions to talk some of the things and drill deep into these subjects. But uh, I want to transition now into what I like to call the ambush fast four or the the bushfire lightning round, where I'm going to give you a blindfold and cigarette and ask you the uh, the fast four questions that every podcast asked. So to okay. kick those off, mate, uh, what's your favourite quote and why? You actually mentioned it. It's Warren Buffett. <laughs> Be fearful when everyone's greedy, that one. Um, okay. I, I don't know why, but, yeah, it just, it just seems to resonate. Um, every time I hear doom and gloom, I'm like, yes, thank you. I, I, you're probably like me. I'm a bit of a contrarian. When Wherever I'm hearing the, the crowd going one direction, it's like, right, there's an opportunity here. Now's the time to... To pounce, so uh, I, I really encourage people to take that contrarian approach and really question what they're hearing and, and get their data and their information from credible sources, not from uh, news decks or the headlines on the newspaper. Uh, awesome. Uh, shifting to the literary field, then, what's the top book that you'd recommend we read and why? Then, John, I it, uh, make. I'm going to ask you this because I'm, I'm, I value your opinion more. But Rich Dad Poor Dad was a catalyst for a lot of my. I know it's a very simple book, but wow. God, talk about light bulb moments. It all made sense, you know. Um, oh. Reading that your house wasn't an asset, I was like, "What? What are you talking about?" So that was it. That was amazing. So go and get it, guys. If you haven't read it, Rich Dad Poor Dad, Butchie. What about you? Well, I reckon Rich Dad Poor Dad is still just as uh, relevant today as what it was when when I read it well, you know, thirty years ago, because uh, there's nuggets of gold there that are just as applicable. Uh, I'm, I'm a, an avid reader. I've always got four or five books on the go. But if I think if I was uh, starting out in the process, uh, any book by Noel Whitaker is oh, worth Noel reading. Whitaker, of course. Uh, he's really good, mate. He's an, he's an investor who's also a very good accountant. 
Uh, and I know when I was starting off in the, the process, one of these books really helped me understand the importance of the structuring of the property in terms of the tax treatment. And and the thing that most investors don't spend much time on is the cash flowing of the property, because if you're holding on a property for 10, 15 years plus, the cash flow is actually the thing that's going to get you from the start to the finish. And there's way too many investors who only cursory look at, you know, here's, here's the mortgage and here's the rent, here's the gap, can I afford it? Yeah, okay. But as you and I know, there's a lot more to it than that. Uh, yeah. So, you know, that that affordability piece is the bridge between now and tomorrow uh, and Noel Whitaker's books. Uh, there's a series of them, uh, are well worth a read as far as that goes. That would be my thoughts Thank on that, you. mate. But uh, I, I now want to switch into the investment advice arena, John, uh, and I want you to sort of talk to us about what's been the, the worst and the best piece of investment advice that you've received today. The worst and the best piece. Um, I mm. think the the best piece of advice was always to focus on trying to create passive income. Yeah. Okay, find something that generates passive income, whether it be business, stocks, shares, you know, writing music where you get royalties, that sort of concept. And if you can follow it, the, if it becomes a passion or you enjoy it, whether it's writing music and get royalties, um, dividends of stocks or property, then make that your obsession. So that was a that was a number one thing. Hence the reason why that I got into finance from a business perspective. Yeah. That, that's those main years during the Royal Commission when when I wasn't writing as much business. That helped me get through the bad times. Yeah. The property portfolio helped as well. Yeah. So that was really really good. Um, the bad piece of advice was oh, I've had so many, but the one that I took action on was believing um, people who were who were well meaning and they sold me off the plan apartments. And uh, the opportunity costs, I, I don't want to think about it because I reckon it'd be millions because had I bought something else that wasn't, you know, a box in the sky, then, you know, that I would have been millions of dollars ahead. So, yeah, um, yeah just just be careful of the agenda um, behind people who <laughs> try to help you but may not have the competence or the understanding of, of, uh, of what it's going to take to help you get to where you want to go in your journey. Yeah, really good advice there, mate. Because I, a lot of the spruikers in that space, uh, they they sell a really good message. A lot of what they say has truth in it, but it's just applied to the wrong product. Uh, yeah. So it sounds believable, uh, but the end result actually doesn't tick all the boxes. So uh, be really careful about who you're dealing with in that space, and be really clear about who's paying them. And how they're getting paid because uh, that that can often make the difference. And make sure you're talking to people who actually invest in what they're suggesting you invest in. Because uh, if they're not, then uh, there's always a big question mark there for me. But uh, I just want to switch now into the, the last exercise. Uh, you know, I, as you know, I'm a believer that you know sustainable success lies at the intersection of self health and wealth. And in the health health piece, that's the daily habits and the rewarding rituals and the uh, the disciplines that we apply to everyday life that then contribute to our, our greater success. What's a, a daily discipline that you employ that's contributed most to your investment success today? Investment or health, Bushy? Which one? Uh, investment. Investment. Okay. Um, again, it's just really getting up every day and saying, what can I do to add to my passive income? So from that nine to five perspective, it's build, building the business that every time I have a new customer, there's that new new perspective, a uh, new income stream. Uh, I've shifted a little bit now in terms of trying to help my kids. 
Yeah. Um, I've learned now about the importance of special purpose vehicles as the asset holding entity, SPVs. Yep. I can do a whole session on this. Yes. It, it really does help mitigate if you've got potential issues with borrowing capacity. So SPV, special purpose vehicles, there are some banks out there that allow you to isolate that ecosystem where the rent and the liability stays within that trust. Yeah, There are some banks out there that allow you to keep moving and creating more and more trusts. So in that journey, I've learned how to do that and help. I'm now trying to help my kids because God forbid how they're going to afford anything in Sydney or Melbourne or whatever capital city they want to move for. Um, but I also want to stress the importance of the health bit, Bushy. Yeah. Um, when I was mentoring mortgage brokering as a business for a while there, I actually brought in dietitians. Yeah. I'm ashamed to admit our industry is very unhealthy and I can't stress the importance. I know it sounds stupid on a on a real an investment show. Not at all, mate. Not at 80% all. 80% of your health can come from your diet. It's a, it's a foundation stone. There's no no point being wealthy if you're not healthy because you're not going to live long enough to enjoy it. It's that simple. Yeah. And if I was a man of influence and power, I would be making such massive movements towards getting Australians to eat better. And a, a very good scientifically backed way of doing that is a low carb, almost ketogenic yep. diet. Yep. Um, don't mean to be controversial, but it's worked for me and it's made me feel a lot more alert. Uh, I feel lighter, I have a lot more energy. And then it, with that is a movement, just any form of movement once a day. It just I think we've made it so complicated <laughs> that, you know, if you love the gym, go for it. If you like to go for a walk, go for it. If you love the beach or swim, just go for it. So uh, I came, I play squash every Tuesday night. This morning went for an hour walk. Uh, tomorrow there will be a hit program. The next day there's a weight, a um, bit of weights. Yep. So the combination of really good diet keeps you mentally so good. Yeah. Um, do you want to dig deeper? I fast every day. And the mental acuity of that that generates is phenomenal because I'm not having a food coma yeah. uh, during that thing. So anyway. Love it. We've got a lot more in common than, yeah, that, that's brilliant, mate. I, we've got a lot more in common than uh, than I thought, mate, because uh, everything you just said, uh, I'm going tick, tick, tick. That's exactly the approach I take, mate. So it's, it's not rocket science. Uh, it's been around for centuries, but we've just uh, lost sight of it at times, unfortunately. If we get get back to uh, our ancestral roots and just live the lifestyles that that we're actually being designed to do, then uh, life gets a lot more enjoyable as a as a consequence, mate. So, I love you sharing that, uh, mate. Uh, been a great conversation. I, I I feel like we've only been talking for five minutes, but uh, and I know that we could talk for a lot longer. But if you were to sort of summarise our conversation today, what would be your key takeaways and immediate actions that aspiring investors need to take? Become educated. Try and find people that supply you data as part of the education piece. All right. That'll remove opinion and, and biases. Because once you've got the data, so become educated. Once you've got edu- once you've got an education process, then the roadmap. Greater roadmap to underachieve. I'll leave you with that, Bushy. Uh, yeah, the underachievement's got a, a few a few brains going underachieve. That's a bit of a question mark. Uh We'll we'll come back and delve into that at a future date, mate. So we'll, we'll keep keep everyone guessing on it. Uh, love the exercise there, mate. Uh, for those that have like myself who really resonated with your message today, uh, how can we uh, find out more and get more involved with you, John? 
Thank you, Bushy. Again, very humbled to be on your show. Thank you for what you do for the community. Um, every time I listen to you, I learn something. So thank you. Uh, for those of you who want to get in contact, um, hunterwood.com.au is the website. You can have a look uh, at all the services. Uh, I've got some amazing articles where I can share with you, for example, regionals versus um, par- uh, capital cities. Another great one is past performance versus future performance is not an indicator of future performance. There's an inverted relationship there. I'd love to talk to you about that, Bushy, in the next episode. Um, yeah, so john at hunterwood.com.au or put an inquiry through my website, hunterwood.com.au. I love it, mate. I know you've also got a, an insider's guide to SMF uh, secrets uh, and some cash flow secrets that go with that. So you've got some great information to share. Uh, I'm, go- I'm actually going to issue a challenge to the listeners uh uh, because I like people to uh, do a bit of work to to gain the advantage rather than just expect it, John. So uh, if uh, you'd like to email me at bushy at knowhowproperty.com and answer this really simple question, how will John's insider guide help you? Spirit through and John John and I will pour over the responses and uh, we'll, we'll forward a, uh, a copy of the report plus any other information John's happy to share uh, for what we consider to be the best responses. So, uh, John, again, mate, I uh, really appreciate your very generous time on the show today and I'm really looking forward to keeping the conversation going. So stay tuned and uh, we'll we'll talk more in the future. Pleasure, Bushy. Thank you. Thanks, mate. Bye for now. Thanks for tuning in to Get Invested on the Property Hub podcast channel, your home for property investment insights and inspiration. And don't leave yet until you've taken the next step towards living by design. By getting my award-winning book, Get Invested, absolutely free when you sign up at knowhowproperty.com.au or bushymartin.com.au. And finally, make sure you subscribe to Property Hub to get your weekly dose of Get Invested inspiration along with every episode of Realty Talk, Australia's leading property show for red-hot property investing news and insights direct from industry leaders and influencers. Remember to always get invested in your knowledge and... I look forward to seeing you next time.